0: Mitchell, do you hear that? What could it be? Is it our helicopter finally coming to get us? I
1: think it's going to come down and land right beside us.
0: I think it's just a drone.
1: How are we going to fit on a tiny little drone? Well,
0: I mean, one idea, obviously, that would make sense would be to shrink ourselves down. And you think about it logically, we're going to have to buy different size clothing. We're going to need to shrink our suitcases down. It's going to be a whole ordeal. Why don't we just keep pushing the people behind the scenes at the Fieldwork Podcast for a full-size helicopter?
1: We're millennials. It's got to be
0: easy. It's got to be easy.
1: Well, Zach, enough funny business. Everyone listening, my name is Mitchell Hora,
0: And my name is Zach Johnson. This is the Fieldwork Podcast, the podcast by farmers for farmers, and we meaning Mitchell and I are a part of those aforementioned farmers. Many thanks to the Walton Family Foundation again for all of their great support throughout this entire season.
1: Yeah, and sadly that helicopter there is not actually our helicopter. It was a drone that we were using to seed some cover crops into some of my corn at my field day. And we're going to get into the field day here later, but Zach, uh, today's, you know, it's a big day. We made it to the final episode of season three of the Fieldwork Podcast. So it's
0: kind of like a bittersweet thing, isn't it? It's kind of bittersweet, yeah. Yeah, I've been down to Washington County, Iowa twice now for this season. And and in this episode, we're going to get into the last time I was down there, which was just a few days ago, actually at your field day, where a drone was actually out seeding cover crops, like you said. It was a very impressive drone, a couple of them. I hope you had a good day at the field day. Yeah, I had a great day. You had a heck of a turnout there. That was pretty impressive. You filled the fairgrounds up.
1: We filled the fairgrounds. Well, we filled, I mean, the show ring of the fairgrounds. We filled a building. You you
0: had multiple buildings going at one time, too, for all those breakout sessions. Yeah, yeah.
1: Everyone wanted to get back together, and, and we had 20 different states represented. And I know you were bombarded all day, too. Carbon, everyone's talking about it. We've talked about it a pile during this season of the podcast. So it's only fitting... That we get to talk about more carbon here uh, on the last episode of the season.
0: It's carbon talk time. And there's no doubt that there's good intentions there, right? And that the the mindset is correct in what we're trying to do as far as, you know, as you say all the time, move the needle, right? And do things better. And I and always try to to be better stewards of the land. And and how do we do a better job with our carbon? And, and what does that look like as far as changing practices to, um, to bank more of that carbon? I mean, how, how do you measure it? How do you control it who decides what it's worth and and where and, and I mean I you know right now it's just like the conversations are out there and we're, we're still just trying to grasp at anything we can to try to find answers
1: it is very much the Wild West but I think having the conversations is huge to keep working and making progress and hopefully some of these programs are really going to actually pull through and actually be valuable to the farmer I still have hope and obviously you know I've been thrown into this way more than I ever anticipated. And I don't have a whole lot of answers, but you know, there are tools out there. There's lots of companies that are looking at being able to directly measure carbon in the soil and be able to model carbon based on your practices and be able to remotely sense carbon based on satellite and aerial imagery to help with verification. And there's lots and lots of innovation happening around it. And obviously, there's insane amounts of money that are being just thrown at it from all directions and just being used in absurd ways over the uh you know the last year and a half two years that i've kind of been playing in that space really interesting to see the different players that are coming to the table that know that they want to do something when it comes to carbon or sustainability but they don't really know what the heck they want to do (laughs) and i think you know that's our message you know as as farmers is saying hey you know here is how you can actually help us and here is opportunity for us to work with you and let's figure out a way to make this mutually beneficial.
0: Yeah. So I guess jumping back on some of that, how do we measure it and who are the big players as of right now? And and are they going to help us figure out how to measure that? Or maybe there's more, I don't know.
1: I'm hoping so. So the the main standard right now, if you're doing soil testing to directly measure soil carbon is called the dry combustion organic carbon test.
0: It's Uh, yes. The dry combustion, organic carbon. Is that your favorite? Yeah. I hadn't thought of that one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's the standard and it's, it's very, it's been around for a long time, but very few labs do it. It's really, it's been more so an academic, uh, you know, research lab kind of a tool. So you have to do this dry combustion test and you have to do bulk density, um, and basically dry combustion and organic matter, are very similar in some of the processes on how they handle it at the lab, yada, yada. But it's just not very scalable in that the time it takes and the amount of volume that they can d- get done to the lab is is just tough. So dry combustion organic carbon, you can get it at a variety of different labs. The test itself really isn't that expensive. It's like, a, I don't know, I think you get it for maybe 13 bucks or even less than that. So it's not crazy expensive, but the problem is technically you're supposed to measure it all the way down to one meter deep in your soil. It's a pile of work, and there's not very many companies that really haven't figured out. Not very fun.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. You know way more about it than I do, and it seems like the people who still know a ton about it are still trying to figure out what direction they're going with what, right? And and I think we, we definitely saw some of that on the panel down at your field day, where there's generic broad answers and there's an idea there for everything, but exactly where we're going with that is still trying to be figured out.
1: Yeah. And I think part of, you know, what we'll get to here in the clip soon is that it's the wild West. There's lots of different players in it, you know, and and a lot of farmers have heard about, you know, Indigo and Nori and ecosystem service market consortium and land of lakes and nutrient and bear and all these guys, Yara, all these guys are involved. There's, I think going to be kind of a roll up of some of these companies. There's probably going to be some collaboration. There's probably going to be you know some of these companies getting bought and uh, taking bits and pieces of what different people learn, and they're going to kind of compile compile them together and figure it out. Uh, there's also multiple different verifying bodies that all have kind of different rules. So there's the Climate Action Reserve, there's Vera, there's the Gold Standard, there's a variety of others, but those are a couple of the kind of the key ones. But now with the federal government getting involved they're going to want to set kind of their own rules as well and maybe that's going to help to clean it up or maybe everyone's going to say okay no the federal government screwed it up and we got to go back to these other guys on the private sector side and and try to figure out which one of those protocols is going to work so it really stinks that you know the word at this time is we got to kind of wait and let the dust settle at least on a carbon market i think on implementing and trying to learn and figure out what your path forward is going to be. You need to be doing that right now. Absolutely. But, um, actually signing up for a carbon market, I don't want to discourage anybody from doing it. If you have a good opportunity that, that you're going to be able to improve your family farm and invest in your real community and stuff, that's awesome. But, um, definitely read the fine print and I hope it works out for you.
0: Yeah, so I, th- I think we should jump into the conversation here that we had at your field day down in Washington County um, where we actually talked with uh, Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag and Christian Barkon, who is the head of sustainability at Rabo AgriFinance, which happens to be one of the biggest ag banks in the world.
1: A quick disclaimer here, Rabo Bank and Rabo AgriFinance are one of my customers through Continuum Ag. We're doing a pilot project looking at carbon. You'll hear a little bit about it in here, but we won't dwell on that initiative at this point.
0: All right, let's jump to that panel discussion. The first voice you're going to hear is Mike Nag, Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture.
2: Well, well, first of all, it's great great to be here, and, and uh, I th- I'm seeing some friendly faces out here. You know, I've been in Washington County many times, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that's been done here. There's a healthy skepticism about what's happening with carbon and the potential for carbon markets. And yet, uh, I, I, I pick up a lot of optimism. I myself am very optimistic about the, where this can go. And in large part, it's because of where we are today based on the work that's been done for, for decades in the state like Iowa and, and a county like Washington County. Uh, a lot of the initial work, a lot of the, the uh, innovation was done many years ago here. And we've been able to learn a lot from that and apply that
1: across the state. Christian, we got to hear from you. Introduce yourself and uh, explain who is Robbo. Who are you? What's your role? We'll dig into it
3: more later, and Zach can get some of his burning questions off his chest. So, my name is Christian Barkin. I'm uh, the Vice President of Sustainability for North America on the rural side of Rabobank. Let me just say a few words about Robobank. So, if you're not familiar with the organization, it's one of the top 20 financial lenders in the world, 116 years old, started as a cooperative in Netherlands, is still a cooperative in Netherlands. Two things about RoboBank. Number one is we're the only financial institution in the world that does nothing but food and agriculture. Our mission is grow, um, grow a better world together with you, okay? So that's, it's all food and agriculture. Number two, it's all, about, it's all about sustainability financing. So everything that we do, we try to weave in sustainability in, in everything that we do. So. So with that stage set, let's talk about sustainability for a minute and why we need to continue that journey. We're adding 100 million people a year on the planet. That's why we cannot stop, OK? We've got to do more with less. We're running out of stuff, OK? Think about it this way. We've got to produce 70% more food with the same input as today. Where's that going to come from? we got a lot to
1: unpack there, Zach. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: there's a lot to unpack with carbon markets in general. let's
2: let's dig in a little bit on this on this carbon space and, and just environmental credits generally uh, around sustainability and again it's it's through many of the same things that we uh, that have got us to where we are today on these nutrient reduction strategy and soil conservation is working in partnership you know working to uh, to de-risk Uh, the adoption of new practices, whatever they may be, you know, we may be talking cover crops, no-till, nitrate-reducing wetlands, nutrient management, you name it, it could be many more, there will certainly be innovation in this space, but it's when you de-risk those things, you provide technical assistance, we can provide some financial assistance, a marketplace develops to uh, sell off credits, Uh, this all results in more interest awareness and uh, more adoption of practices across the, the state. So government doesn't have all the answers. Don't be surprised when we don't we aren't the most innovative uh, player at the table. Okay, but how can we uh, enable uh, progress
0: in this in this space? I'm surprised to hear that government doesn't have all the answers.
1: Was that a surprise to you?
0: Yeah, that was shocking. <laughs> in,
1: Minnesota, I, in Minnesota, the government has all the answers. So that's the. Da- I'd that, say uh, I'd say we should. We don't ask, need to get into that. We should
2: ask for a poll here. But I don't, you never, never ask a question <laughs> you don't know the yeah. answer to already. But uh, I think uh, you know. I think I think there are a few nodding heads out here.
0: Christian, I, I want to ask you a question you had mentioned before about how you know, Rob O'Bank does tons of financing, and, and the mission is to, to grow along with farmers, and the financing that you do, there's always kind of an undertone of sustainability, right? Can you give me an, an example of that? What do you mean if I come to you as a farmer, and, and I want to work with you as a lender? I mean, what does that look like when you talk about having that undertone of sustainability?
3: Well, I mean, it starts with recognizing that first, there is an opportunity to do things different. It's, it's not just carbon. There's about 40, 50 indicators in environmental, social, and economic that you can act upon, right? Carbon is just one of them. Okay? So you can create a, a carbon, absolutely fantastic product that's actually not the more sustainable product because it's just screwed up everywhere else. So, so you got to keep that balance. Now, if you think of sustainability as a continuous improvement journey, which is what we've been on for the past 150 years, you got to start like every journey. If I want to go back home to Colorado, I have to, have to know where I'm at right now. So, same thing with sustainability, you got to take a, a baseline. You got to know where you are. So, that's what we're working with our clients on um, trying to figure out uh, where are we, where are they in sustainability on that journey today try to identify the opportunities where we can actually change things and help them through financing change those things, right? So we do have targeted financing for like solar and dairy digesters and so on. Rabobank launched a program called Carbon Banking, the only financial institution in the world that's messing around with carbon credits right now, right? Messing around like we're not. Hopefully we know what we're doing. We launched that pilot program with Discover Mitchell and we partnered with them. So it's absolutely fantastic partnership that I'm looking forward to forge for the next foreseeable future as well. But in that pilot program, we're looking at ways to incentivize the clients that are participating to actually take charge, implement regenerative agriculture practices, get incentivized monetarily to do that, and then do something with that carbon credit somewhere else where people can, are not as fortunate to actually have the opportunity of taking charge or doing something about that. So that's one way to work together and actually uh, provide the benefit for the farmer. The other one is you can create a model out there where you'd say, here's a criteria. If you participate as a client in certain things related to this criteria, then you would be receiving certain benefits out of that. So, and that whole criteria could be all about sustainability. So, so that's another program that we're working on. Yeah. More carbon markets, Zach.
1: More
0: carbon markets. Yeah, it's it's like the wild west. You don't know where you're gonna go right now. How do we take this idea and figure out what direction to go with it? Right now, it seems like everyone's kind of scattering and trying to figure that out.
3: That's why we're here. We're here to actually figure that out. This is good, this is awesome. And it's not about carbon at the end of the day. Use it as a pilot. It's about water credits. It's about animal welfare credits. It's about sustainability credits at the end of the day.
2: I think that's such a great point that Christian made that, yes, carbon today, we're, we're thinking about that. And, you know, to the extent look, there's a market to the extent that somebody wants to buy it. And so, you know, there can be habitat uh, uh, credits. There could be certainly nitrogen and phosphorus or things that we're looking at in terms of, of uh, the nutrient reduction strategy, but there could be a number of. That's why I sort of say it's the environmental credit, or I think you said sustainability credit. I define it as you would like. And, and, and on carbon, there, you talk about the things that government, a government role, or uh, things that need to be uh, better established. There's what I would call, there's a healthy skepticism out there, right? If you're a farmer and you're looking into, you want to, you know, you're looking to sign on a a dotted line, you'd better understand, as with anything, what are you getting into? Have your eyes wide open. Know what you're signing. There are some researchable questions that still need to be addressed, right? There's There's things about, uh, you know, when we started a nutrient reduction strategy that was launched in 2013 was based on the first of its kind science assessment that was done at Iowa State University. What that meant was we went, the, the scientists, not we, the scientists went and looked at uh, the, the research that says basically uh, for each of the practices that we had in the strategy, if it's cover crops, the data shows that there's a 30% reduction in phosphorus and nitrogen loss from an acre planted to cover crops. Now, is it more sometimes? Yes. Is it less sometimes? Yes. But the science says 30%. Okay, then I can go and uh, as, as one of the principal uh, leaders of the nutrient reduction strategy and say, we can invest in that practice because it has a corresponding nutrient reduction, okay? It's the same type of scientific underpinning that we need for every one of these sustainability credits or environmental credits, carbon being one of them. If you have a practice, what's the corresponding uh, carbon sequestration? Or how do we go and measure that? And then how do we validate and verify that? Those are things that are still, there's still a lot of work to be done there. There's very researchable questions here that, uh, that we need to know. And I think that is a role for government and then the second piece that is, is absolutely a role is, is to uh, observe a market, to be involved in a market to the extent that there's fairness and
0: visibility. And
1: now we're gonna take a
0: quick break.
1: Now back into our conversation, we got some questions for our panelists that were actually submitted by some listeners online.
0: I, I've got a question here. Um, we're going to read th- this question comes from Terry, and this is for Secretary Nag. Is the sum of all these pieces that you're putting together are they working? Do you have the correct stuff in place when it comes to the funding, the strategies, and the practices? Is that being yeah. successful from what no, you're I, seeing?
2: I get the question, and you know the the, the answer is well, yes, we've got the right the, the, the right strategies in place. It what what we know we have to do is is more of it. It takes a long time to build that kind of culture of conservation uh, where folks uh, get to the point where we are today on soil erosion prevention. It is the same mentality and the same approach that will allow us to make progress on uh, nutrient reduction as well, nitrates in particular. And so one of the things that I think you should hold me accountable for and, and something we hold, I hold my team accountable for is to what extent can we leverage state resources? If we're spending $1 by itself, then that's that's not good enough. We want to leverage that with federal dollars and private sector dollars and landowner dollars, and I think we have a good track record of doing that. We measure based on a logic model approach. If you want to see change in the water, you have to see change on the land. If you want to see change in the land, then you have to see change in people. If you want to see change in people, then you've got to invest in information and outreach to people. We're heavily focusing on what are we doing about putting practices on the ground. That's the only way I know how to go out and ensure that we can see the change that we wanna see in the water, is get more done on the ground. To the question, I suspect maybe the question behind the question, are we doing enough? Well, no, we're not doing enough. Uh, But I think if you look over the, the trajectory that the state of Iowa's been on when it comes to key practices, we're accelerating. Uh, Just two examples. One is uh, uh, building bioreactors and saturated buffers we just launched here. In fact, I just got a text today that the first one's going in the ground. 51, we're going to cluster 51 of those practices together. One contractor has been uh, mobilized to build those and and 51 are going in at a time. Uh, Wetlands, that's the other one that we're heavily focused on. Uh, It's taken us nearly 20 years to build 100. We've got 100 under development that'll get built in the next couple of years. If we can drive more revenue back to farms, if we can create more incentive and more impetus to get more done on the farm, that only uh, takes us closer to achieving our goals of of nutrient reduction. So we're definitely headed where we need to go in terms of practice adoption. We just need flat out more of it.
1: But back to okay, with whether it be carbon or any of these sustainability metrics, the thing on the water side is. Here's a practice, and here's its, a general idea of its impact to carbon sequest- or to improving water quality. My concern with carbon sequestration and in the same type of practices, of course, can draw down carbon and help us, but just cover crop is a big spectrum. And there's a lot of farmers here that are the super innovators that don't qualify for carbon markets today. A lot of guys here have cover crops still growing, and they've planted into them. And the carbon models today don't allow you to have that overlap or like relay cropping that we're gonna you know have going. So how do we ensure that that we can improve these models and how do we get better data to go in so that we understand how to create the asset as farmers and ensure that the buyers know that what they're buying is real?
2: <laughs> That's reality on the ground, right? You know, that's where land-grant institutions are key, that's where private sector is gonna be, private sector research. You do have to sometimes start by piloting things and demonstrating things. And that's what I hear USDA saying too, by the way, is hey, we're looking for people to partner and looking for pilot projects and, and get some things on the ground. I'm a huge believer in, you know, at some point you gotta stop talking about it and get out and do it. We don't have this all, we collectively, don't all have this figured out.
3: Mitchell, that's why you're here, okay? You're here to help us learn how to measure that stuff. So, huge opportunity actually to to learn how to do that. And there, just like the secretary said, there are so many bits and pieces that still need answers. You need a protocol to follow. So you need to have certification, verification, tracking. You get a credit. How do you know that it's not going to be double dipping, right? Um, so, um, but time is going to solve that problem. So, we take 2 or 3 or 4 or 5 years and over time we're going to see how that practice goes but we got to start somewhere and we got to do something right about that and if you guys think this is complicated think of it this way this carbon is one element and we're just talking about corn and soybean you have no idea how many clients we've had with blueberries and sweet potatoes and nursery trees and all that stuff going like where is my carbon where how do i we have no idea. I don't even know. I don't know whether. Do you know what the what, what the regenerative agricultural practices are for blueberries? I have no
1: clue. Zach, you're all over the place. What are the regenerative practices for blueberries? I just eat them. Yeah, that works. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't know how to grow them.
1: But I mean, Zach, you've been seeing all this now, and and like, and you had pretty good success with cover crop on your farm this year, but you've had a lot of failures. Yep. How do we? I mean. Speaking to that, and, and I mean some of your response here, and, and overall thoughts too, on what needs to happen. Well, it,
0: it's obviously it's got to start at this level right here, right? I mean it has to. It, it, I mentioned before it's trying to figure out what is the right thing for everybody's operation, because you can look at Washington County, Iowa. You can look at Pope County, Minnesota, where I'm from. It's a seven-hour drive northwest of here. yet yeah, we're growing the same crops, but the soils are completely different. You know, the the climate is different. And 10 miles east of me, they have irrigators. And and they dig gravel out of the ground to build the roads with. And the crops are different there. Everything is different. And it's 10 miles away from me. So we've got guys 10 miles east of us that are using cover crops now. Instead of growing uh, uh, peas, like the vegetables, they grow peas. And they used to put in an early season soybean after that. Now they're finding that a lot of those guys are having better success with putting in a cover crop after that and just letting it winter kill and then planting into it next spring rather than try to harvest those low bushel soybeans that they double cropped. So I think it's just trying to figure out what matches up to every individual's operation and where you know how do you work this in from a 100-acre operation to a 100,000-acre operation? you know, And what is the right thing for each individual person in each area? And just have conversations like this to try to... Take those steps.
2: You, you've nailed something that's really important there, and that's that it, it sort of speaks to a couple things. One is the diversity of the landscape is, is real. You don't need somebody in Des Moines, Iowa dictating what practices go where in the state of Iowa any more than we definitely wouldn't want somebody in Washington, D.C., or a boardroom somewhere telling uh, farmers what works on their operations.
0: That's, that's not productive. In fact, it'll turn people off. And well, so, well, none of us want our neighbors telling us what we're supposed to do, right? That's a good point. <laughs> so why would we want to listen to somebody else, like you say, sitting in Des Moines or sitting in a boardroom? So what, what needs to make sense? And this is one of the key
2: messages. I know there's a, this is, you've got a, a diverse audience. You've got a lot of people listening. you got a lot of people here. And, and here's one of the key factors. Work with farmers. Work alongside farmers. Don't just sit at the end of the supply chain and turn back down to the supply side and say, "This is what you're going to do, or you find the savings." And I'm I'm worried about that. That yet each chain you you push it further and further down, and it ends up at a, in a farmer's lap ultimately, and uh, that's the you know the end of the line, if you will. Every participant in that supply chain should it should capture some value from this, right? We don't want only the retailer at the end to make claims about certain products. No, that needs to be shared all the
1: way down the supply chain to uh, to the producer as well. And Christian, from a massive global corporate scale, it's some of the biggest companies in the world that are involved in this. How do we help to showcase to them, here's our opportunity as farmers to create new assets? That's what we're creating. We're creating a new asset, but I think it's more than just check the box on cover crop or check the box on no-till. There's so much more nuances to it. And that additionality is an ongoing thing. Just like regenerative ag. Everybody in this room has a different gener, different definition of regenerative ag. It's different for every farm, Zach, like you brought up. How do we help to better showcase those nuances so that we can ensure that this is going to be real for the massive players around the world?
3: we really have to share that value. So first of all, you have to capture it and share it across the entire chain. But some of the large corporations out there have made unbelievable commitments related to sustainability, right? Which they're going to have a hard time trying to meet their, meet their goals unless they partner up, unless they start recognizing the farmers for what they can do. So. Number one is recognition. So recognize the farmers, the clients for the work that they're putting in this field somehow, and market that to the other side of the spectrum. So that's again a program that we're working on. Hopefully, we can you know launch it at the beginning of next year. But um, having you know, you would have processors and retailers looking for more sustainable farmers. Who's going to say what's a more sustainable farmer, right? If you are within the same or partner with the same organization, you can actually connect those dots and look at the entire value chain and, and make that happen. The other thing is reporting, right? So you can actually, either as a financial institution, trade associations, or government I can tap also into this opportunity to keep track of it and and look at percentages and reporting and periodic stats and it was mentioned earlier today infographics you guys have no idea how powerful those things are so simple things like that right um that would actually make the case we're all consumers we're all because cons- at the end of the day it's up to us to go and buy something that's more sustainable out there in the market and and you know, when we say, well, consumers want A and B and C, I'm like, have we asked ourselves what we want? Like, I have, we have five kids. Can you imagine my wife going, or I, or both of us together going to the supermarket and trying to look at the labels and read the, all the little, you know, footprints in there, and one of them is going to be carbon and water, and so I don't, I don't have time for that, right? So we got to do a better job on how we tell that story, and I think, from my point of view, My expectation is that we do the right thing, we create the more sustainable product, and that high quality innovation, uh, efficiency, taking care of the land, the water, and all that stuff, it's all part of it.
0: I have a, it's a two-part question here, and any of the three of you can go ahead and answer however you want to, but if we're talking about carbon markets here, if I understand it correctly, you know, we've got families out here that are doing their best to move the needle, go forward, be more sustainable, do the right thing. And now we're talking about getting paid something to continue those improvements. So there is a company, a corporation, or an industry at the top of that that wants to pay money to buy these credits so that they can claim that they're doing the right thing. In a way, are we allowing them or taking their incentive away for them to do the right thing? Are we saying, you know, as long as you can make it work, you just write a little bit bigger check, buy a few more credits here, and then we'll put the work on these people sitting here to do the right thing, and we'll let the company claim that they made the improvements to the planet, right? So that's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question is, how do we make sure that the people over here doing the work get fairly compensated for that? Because we all know there's a middleman there who's going to want to keep it... <laughs> a secret with how they're handling this brokering between the two, right? Maybe I got a little too heavy there, but no, I'm, I'm no, trying to no. figure out
3: how, how, do we, how do we make that right? You're right on the money. Here's the thing. So we're, we're all using our iPhones, right? Do we want to continue to use iPhones? If we do, we better work with Apple and make sure that they get to that zero emissions that they promised. Because otherwise, there's not going to be any of this. Because they're going to get shut down. Okay? So, they're, they're they've made such huge promises to the stakeholders. that they're, For them to continue to stay in business, they got to do what they got to do. Now, they have to pay for it.
0: But they, they also were able to make that claim without having to come out here and figure out how to, how to not <laughs> till their fields and how to grow cover crops and how to make I'm, the soil I'm and water right cleaner.
3: But here's... So, the sweet spot is you can actually, s- s- there's two sides, right? There's regenerative agricultural practices, and because of that, you capture a certain carbon. You can trade the carbon, compensate these guys for the carbon, but you're not actually taking away the fact that they have implemented regenerative agricultural practices. So that could still continue to be a claim yep. and carried over. So you can. it's not double dipping. It's basically different assets that we're talking about. One is a... Um, I would say the root cause or the, the, the source that actually produced the second asset, you sell one of them, you still have the other one. So you can continue to do that. Um, how do we ensure that they're fairly compensated? Um, <clears throat> I think you're always going to need some middlemen. Now, not all the carbon credits need to be sold. There are a whole bunch of organizations out there that need to offset their own. The other thing is uh, you, you got to look at it as uh, as a true asset that hasn't been quantified yet. And so the, I, I firmly believe that the market it's going to uh, settle uh, on, on a fair price that's going to be okay with, for everybody, um, the buyer and the seller as well. Um, and from the farmer perspective, I firmly believe that there's going to be a, a package of compensations out there 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 are already offers out there for well we're not going to we're going to compensate you just for implementing cover crops so you make a little bit of money you know, for that and then if you expand that and you do it more systematically then you have a carbon credit so you get the money for the carbon credit then then if you do something else you get a little bit of a tax credit so that comes in as well so if you look at the whole package i think it's it's going to come out fair for the For our um, farmers well i think it's about you know stacking those benefits
1: and and i think what's going to be interesting in how i'm looking at this is you know sustainability doesn't matter if the farm is not economically sustainable this has to be a business decision and we have to be able to ensure that the farm has dollars coming in so that we can reinvest and we can we can really continue to to push so you know we're seeing some of these policies being developed we're talking, Mike, on, you know, obviously we have a long way to go. We need to ensure that the innovators are making money out of this, and we've got to stack all these different benefits. As we wrap this up, and a good question from, from John in the, in the submittals, is how do we ensure that this is going to be good for not just big farms, but small farms, that blueberry farmer, and even farmers in Minnesota?
2: Even farmers in Minnesota, he says, that's good. Well, I think part of it is I wrote down, prove it, right? <laughs> prove it, underlined. We have a long ways to go to prove it. And, and this very much is an emerging market. Zach, you, you nailed many of the concerns that are legitimate. Those are real. Uh, it is, as I said, one of my great concerns is that the value isn't shared with some equity or some fairness down the supply chain. That is essential to this. Uh, otherwise, this just becomes an increased cost of doing business for farmers, and it doesn't work. Uh, there's going to be legislation, right? There's a farm bill that's coming. Uh, this administration has ideas about what they'd like to do. Um, remember that a lot of this could be met with higher cost of doing business for farmers, you know? And so, again, that's where there's got to be equity throughout that supply chain, a marketplace that's got visibility to it. And then, you know, uh, Christian, I think you you went there too, which is... Um, uh, how do you compensate? What do these packages look like? And then are you basing it on modeling or are you measuring it, basing it on some measuring in a field? There's a lot of work to be done to, uh, to bring this market to, with some, to some maturity. We're very much on the beginning, uh, beginnings of all this. Again, as I look at it from my chair in the state of Iowa, where we are in terms of our efforts to prevent soil erosion, build soil health, and, and uh, improve water quality, when you start talking about generating environmental credits we're talking about many of the same practices. That's good news. What that means is then we can be talking about these frameworks for the marketplace, we can be talking about how to incentivize, and we can go out and do that precision work that needs to be done to make sure that each farm is getting exactly what they need and and implementing practices as they should.
3: Without putting pressure on anybody right now, I can tell you that the weight of the world is on the shoulder of, of this Um, state, and in particular counties like Washington County, to actually expand and, and prove that this is possible. Because if we cannot move the needle here, then people are not going to be able to do that or copy what we do here in other parts of the world. So this has been awesome. And
1: Zach, to kind of wrap things up, you've seen a lot of this stuff and what's your thought on these markets overall, and kind of the skepticism on where this goes, how how are we feeling?
0: Well, you heard my skepticism. Uh, I would say uh, I'm just going to kind of wait for the three of you to figure it out. And then as the farmer, once the the water starts to become less muddy, maybe I'll be able to see where exactly this is going, right? I mean, I'm paying attention to it all the time, but at some point point it almost feels like we keep talking about carbon credits, but I don't know where to go with it yet. I don't know how to get paid for anything yet.
1: I don't either, Zach. So
3: I actually disagree with you, Zach. If you if we want to make this happen, you gotta come and partner with us. Don't just sit on the fence and say, well let me see what's going on. No, we need you. I mean if everybody Zach that's when you places, say show me the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I already kind of mentioned that. Yeah, so let's try it out. Let's try it together. Okay, we're not ready for that because we're still in the pilot phase. But when we are, let's go. Let's partner up. Let's make it happen. It's going to be awesome.
2: And I think a state like Iowa is well positioned to be a part of that proof of concept and to benefit from it greatly. Because of where we've come, because of the work that's been done in places like Washington County and other communities, Uh, where folks simply got together and, and made it happen and learned from each other. And that's probably my final point. Some of the best presentations that I've seen when it comes to cover crops or conservation adoption have started with, we did that and it failed miserably. And I think, oh boy, here we go. And then we did this and it started to work let's make this future. I mean, I think that's the the piece that we need to, we want to be a part of it. We want to benefit from it as farmers and as Iowa agriculture, then we better be engaged in in making it happen.
0: And that's Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag and Christian Barkon, who is the head of sustainability at Rabo AgriFinance, which happens to be one of the biggest ag banks in the world.
1: Just as a reminder, Continuum Ag and Bank are doing business as we look to implement better carbon systems.
0: That was a deep discussion. I mean, it seems like every carbon market discussion we have gets deep. And, and again, I walk away without any real clarity. I mean, I've, I've got the idea as far as where everybody wants to go here, but how do we do it? And how do we get there once again? Right.
1: It's a marketing kind of thing. It's a tax driven kind of thing. It's a compliance kind of thing. Everyone's got a slightly different reason for me. I want to make sure that I'm aligning with helping the companies and helping to connect farmers with companies that actually care about the farmer. And that if the farmer is going to make money in this, then I think those companies can also make money in this. Right. But I think a lot of companies are approaching that wrong, that they're going way too much from the top down, and it's just not going to work that way.
0: I would say you're absolutely correct. At least I hope it doesn't work that way, right? Because if the farmer is the one making the difference here, then the farmer needs to be rewarded. And that's not to say that everybody from the farmer up the chain or down the chain or however you want to look at that you know shouldn't be rewarded and shouldn't make some money or or however you want to work those rewards but we got to make sure that there are advantages for the farmer in order to be involved in this or else we're we're not going to move those needles
1: yeah i think that's 100% it, and it boils down to transparency who owns the data where is that data flowing how do we set the prices some of these different you know questions that are still yet to be kind of worked out and every single company and every single contract is a little bit different. There's been a ton of major promises in this space and not a whole lot of delivering yet. So those companies that can actually deliver on promises and be transparent and actually go to bat for the farmers. I think they've got a great opportunity. It's going to
0: be really interesting to see where it goes from here and and to see if, some of these big companies again unnamed that have made these promises to see if they can actually fulfill these promises and what happens if they can't
1: there are some companies that are getting some bad press about not hitting those sustainability goals and i think these companies are going to have to like actually take a little moment to reflect and go back to you know baby step number 1 of setting goals that we learned in 4H and FFA and stuff as as you know kids out on the farm about setting a goal that's realistic and measurable and attainable and timely. And, you know, those smart goal kind of components and like, you know, let's create something that's actually going to make meaning here, not just that's going to be fluff and going to get a headline. It's got to be real. You
0: know, when it gets right down to it, yeah, they're, they're making these big promises to be carbon neutral, but it's not coming from them other than writing a check. They're, they don't have to change anything about their company other than figuring out how to cash flow that check to have the farmers themselves make the difference.
1: Maybe by season four, we'll have all the answers. We kind of
0: have all the answers now, don't we? We seem to have settled it. Cue the helicopter. We have decided here, since this is the last show of season three, that we need to empty our listener voicemail box. And uh, we should probably see what's in there. So, first up, we've got Nick from Connecticut. Connecticut.
4: Hey guys, it's a great recording. It certainly made me laugh. Uh, my name's Nick and big fan of the podcast. Zach, I've been a big fan of your YouTube since the very beginning. been watching you. Um, I live in Connecticut and in the very near future, I'm looking to move states, looking at buying a bigger chunk of land and having a bigger farm than I do right now. My question for about 10 years now, I've had in my mind to look into and start custom farming a little bit on the side when I do move um, went to a farm show out in New York and saw some of that and that got me the idea I was just wondering if you could maybe interview someone about that or have have anything to add to that just looking to start small um, just tractor hay mower mower conditioner probably rake setter and a round baler um just see where it goes from there just thought it might be a good way to make a little money on the side while i'm using the equipment for my own farm as well and maybe at some point it'll be more than just a second source of income um any comments on that or anything you guys can add to that that would be great
0: thank you so much nick thank you for the call and thank you for being a big fan of the fieldwork podcast and the millennial farmer um You know, I don't have a lot of experience personally with custom farming, but I know a lot of people who do. And uh, we've looked into it several times. Dad did a little bit of it when he was younger. One of the big things to keep in mind there is that it seems like uh, with any type of custom farming, there's a lot of competition for it. All the farmers, or a lot of farmers, have their own equipment. A lot of guys are willing to do some custom farming to help them, you know, make that side income and, and maybe help make the payments and pay some of the maintenance on the machinery. When we've looked into it, I guess what we have found is that it, it probably does help you make payments on machinery and, and justify maybe some newer, nicer, bigger equipment. Um, but ultimately, it, it, it doesn't, at least in our area, seem to provide a ton of extra income. Um, so I, I don't think it's a short-term cash flow thing. But, you know, long-term over time, I think it can help to support a nicer line of equipment. Mitchell, maybe you guys have more experience with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we do a little bit of custom work, like doing planting and harvesting, just for one farmer that that we work with. And, you know, but my my thoughts, where my mind went to on next question is, you know, with the hay side of things, that as we look to integrate more livestock onto the landscape And grazing cover crops, especially with those livestock, there's going to be more of a window where those farmers might need a hay source and maybe uh, they're going to need somebody to come in. My other quick thought for you, Nick, is a huge thing that's going to be needed is for more people to be helping to custom apply cover crops and getting something like an air seeder because you're going to be baling hay during the summer, but then what about in the fall? And in the fall, you'd have a really great opportunity to be able to still use your same tractor but get an air seeder and you can custom apply cover crops. Everyone's really busy in the fall and having the time to plant cover crops is a huge constraint. Definitely a growing market um, and just another way to be able to diversify your new entrepreneurial Could open venture. up
0: some more opportunities for for not just him on the custom side of things, but for the farmers around him that want to utilize that. So yeah, that's definitely a good thing to keep in mind.
1: All right, Zach, the last voicemail of the last episode of season three it's coming at us live not really not actually live voicemail from aaron from montana
4: exactly hey, mitchell uh my name's aaron i'm just a kid uh from montana i've been really kind of into agriculture for quite some time now and i've been wanting to get a job on a farm and i'm really not sure how to do that i know farmers haven't got uh you know great big billboards out advertising that they're hiring, and I'm, you know, not sure if I should go up to a farmer and just kind of knock on their door and say, "Hey, you need some, you need someone to work for you." You know, not sure if I should go up to a farmer and just kind of knock on their door and say, "Hey, you need some, you need someone to work for you." So I guess I'm just kind of wondering, how do I do that? How do I, how do I go out and look for that job? Thanks. Bye.
1: Well, Aaron, hey, thanks a lot for calling in. And yeah, that'd be pretty cool if. You know, we did have billboards saying, Hey, there's, you know, farm work available right here with a big old arrow. That'd be pretty cool, but definitely don't have that. And I don't know. I think to me that, yeah, it's definitely easiest if you can develop a relationship with somebody that's local, um, you know, a neighbor that you've had for a long time, obviously that's the easiest, but there, there are new apps and stuff available too. just thinking out loud, like there's new apps that are being developed to be able to look for, uh, for farm laborers might be able to find something there or just being able to keep posting posting online uh, or maybe through this. If anyone wants to get connected with Aaron in Montana, look for the gigantic billboard if you need some additional farm help.
0: There you go. We, we could help a guy land a job within agriculture. That'd be cool, wouldn't it?
1: Got to make that money. That's right. Are you saying we should take like 30%? That's I think that's usually how these deals work. <laughs> I mean, not saying that we need another business venture going on around here, but a placement for farm help through the podcast. People that are interested in podcasts by farmers for farmers, and now we're getting jobs by farmers for farmers. There you go. It could work.
0: It's all it all comes full circle here at the end of season three. Mitchell, season three was a big one. How could we even top? season three we were number one, we're number one. season four <laughs> will be even number oneist morrist Morris. you know it i know, you know it, it. We, we all know, we know it, it. It's, all all gonna gonna <laughs> it's gonna be
1: huge <laughs> <laughs> season three we got to was. talk to
0: tom vilsack i mean i thought it was pretty awesome getting to interview him getting to go down to washington okay. county and meet so many of the prominent people that have had success with so, so much of the stuff that we actually talk about
1: cotton we got to talk about cotton we learned about cotton we talked to the legend, Dr. Yeah. Haney, and Rick Clark again. Yep. So that's yep. kind of a
0: very cool. interesting story there. So yeah, of course, it, season three
1: was pretty awesome. Of course, lots about about um, we Washington. got to drink a
0: curns of beer like uh, while we were recording throughout an entire podcast. It was huge. And Annie was, was- shocked that we drank the whole thing.
1: Oh yeah. I was giving her crap because in the episode it made it sound like the actual cut on it made it sound like we had like one little drink and like that we were done no we drank the whole thing I think that might have to be like a bonus or something later listen to Mitchell and Zach drink a full kerns of beer with Annie for
0: beer drinkers by beer drinkers that is it for season three of Fieldwork we've had a blast and learned a ton I hope that you guys have as well
1: our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help all season long, from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki.
0: Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator.
1: Eric Romani and Veronica Rodriguez mix our show, and our theme music was composed and performed by Johnny Vince Evans.
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will catch you
1: next season. What should we talk about in season four? What do we want to talk about? I, I, I
0: think just um, the helicopter market, new and used helicopter markets,
1: helicopter market, getting Oprah on obviously about our banana farm on the beach. We could dive into, you know, what are the nutrient needs of beach banana trees? Some testing for that more data. Of course we got to have data. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we We'll have Oprah bring the data. Yeah, Oprah can obviously bring the data. Oh,
0: and he's wondering if it was a banana farm or a coconut farm. You know, I, I don't think we need to limit it. Whatever grows in the beach, sugar sand crops.
1: We'll take all of all of them. I don't know what the you know, the markets are right now or how those have been kind of affected. And I don't know how how do bananas and coconuts do they handle like this kind of droughty conditions all that well?
0: Yeah, cuz they're on the beach so they just send a taproot down to get to the the water. It's right there, yeah. It are does do margaritas grow on trees? We could have we could have a margarita farm. A
1: farm. I'm just <laughs> thinking. This I mean this is a pretty good idea. Margarita farm and then you got the banana and coconut as like a, a little garnish on there?
0: Yeah. We're going to need an actual helicopter pad or else the sand is going to blow around every time it lands, it takes off. And that's, that's no fun.
1: That would really sting in the old eyeballs. It would. And, uh, and also that'd be like kind of some, you know, that's erosion. We don't want that.
0: Oh, that's a good point. We could do season four from the beach.
1: Season four from the beach, use the helicopter pad. So we don't have wind erosion from the helicopter on the sand sandblasting our coconuts and bananas and bruising them.
0: wonder what kind of carbon credits you get for adding a helicopter pad.
1: We can probably store some carbon underneath it. We'll just get a big old like storage pit underneath our pad and utilize the carbon credits to pay for our helicopter.
0: I like where you're going with this.
1: Now we're getting it figured out. Now we're getting it figured out.